Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Let's begin in prayer. Please stand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please welcome back Dr. John Cuddeback. Thank you very much. I'm honored that you've come back and uh, especially that you're here this evening. So let's, let's jump right in. We have some very exciting things. Um, there's, a, there's a handout in the back there. Just to know, the handout this time is more uh, so that you have some notes to take with you. It's not so much something you're going to need to look at um, while we're going through things. It's more so that you didn't uh, have to take notes or jot something down if you wanted to remember some of the key points that we're going to uh, look at. But I, I'd like to give you a little bit of sense of where we're going. So the, the first point actually on the handout, but again, you don't need to look at it, is a quick overview of three key things we're going to try to look at here today. There is a natural standard of human action that we can discover. Discover there's a key word. We'll talk about that shortly. This standard is most of all put into human action by developing virtues. So we'll connect this standard that we'll talk about a little bit with the theme of virtues by saying virtues are fundamentally the way that the standard, the order of human life, of human action, becomes properly put into our lives. That is what forming virtues is. And then finally, the third point, this standard or this order shows up especially in our appetites and in our apprehension. As we talked about last time, there's two main kinds of powers, our appetites, desires, and in our thoughts, thoughts there being another name for apprehension. And overall, what are we moving to here today? Fundamentals of ethics. Last time, we were looking at something that is, is frankly, I think, a little, a little drier, some more fundamentals of the basic powers, divisions within human nature, now that we have that to a certain extent down behind us, now we're able to move forward to more look at, at the ethics aspects, and that's what's captured in particularly the word virtue. But let's, let's, let's start by once again turning to, as Aquinas would have us do, as Aristotle would have us do, look to the natural world. We are a part of the natural world. Whether we did it from a theological perspective, St. Thomas loves to say, you want to understand fundamental things, look to the first foundational way that God reveals things to us, by the natural world, by his artifact, by the fruit of his own designs. Look around us and we can learn much from the natural world. Aristotle started always by looking to the natural world too. 
central thing that we see. If we look at anything that exists by nature, it's going somewhere. There's absolutely nothing in the natural world that is unchanging in the sense of it's already finished. Everything is, is clearly striving. It's, it's trying to go somewhere. Aristotle loved to point this out. It's obviously most clear again in living things. Living things have a very specific order to them where they're trying. They're trying to get somewhere. Of course, non-rational ones are not trying rationally, but they're still trying. And this is of their nature that they're, as it were, on the way somewhere. And the neat thing is, the more that we understand the nature of the thing, the fundamental given structure of the thing, the more we understand it, the more we're able to understand that certain things are good and certain things are not for that kind of thing. Simple example. Those who have spent a lot of time around fruit trees, and we might say really understand the structure of fruit trees, the nature of the apple tree. It's very clear that apple trees, again, are they're going somewhere. They're about something. We use language of, well, here's an apple tree that's, that's doing well. There's one that's not doing well. It's still an apple tree, but it is not a flourishing apple tree. There's something wrong with it. Those who know apple trees best are in the best position to make that kind of judgment. There are certain things that we can say fit with apple tree nature, and then there are certain things that do not. Sometimes it's surprising. Sometimes it's only those who know apple trees well that can make that discernment. We might not have realized, if we didn't already have some familiarity with this, that pruning is actually good for it. Or you can also tell, again, when things are going well, it blossoms. It blossoms at the right time. It blossoms in the right way. An apple tree that is healthy, you can judge by, okay, it's flourishing. It's doing these things, right time, right place. Everything's in order. Hmm, look at this one. These actions are showing there's something wrong. It's not flourishing. Fundamental insight. We, too are natural beings. Certain things are good for human beings. Certain things fit with what and who we are, and certain things don't. It's one of the most foundational things that we can see by looking at the natural world. Certain things fit with this kind of thing, Certain things don't. If it acts in this way, then things are going well, and it will achieve the flourishing that that kind of thing is obviously all about. Again, no one would, would even think of questioning. You judge ultimately an apple tree by, has it gotten to where it was clearly supposed to be going? 
Same thing with human beings. We're able, we are able to see that there are certain things that fit with human nature and there are certain things that do not. Last week we talked about a couple of the aspects of human nature. One of the things we really emphasized was that how human nature is a composite masterpiece. The man is a rational animal. Rational says spiritual, animal says living body. And that th these are both absolutely essential. Well, that's going to come home to roost here today when we realize that is central in ethics. If we don't understand man as the rational animal, if we don't understand the beautiful composite unity of human nature, we're not going to be able to understand fundamental aspects of how we should act or shouldn't. Let me give you one quick example. We'll come back and look at some more later. But why could it be the case that it is absolutely right at certain times to go down on one knee, whereas other times it would not be right or fitting to go down on one knee? Bodily actions for human beings have spiritual meaning. And that's because of this beautiful composite nature of the human person. You can imagine already how central that is, among other things, for sexual ethics. That bodily actions have spiritual meaning when we're talking about that amazing creature called the rational animal. Well, we'll come back and we'll look at that more specifically. So, those, those kinds of truths, different powers that we talked about last time, that's our basis for then being able to say, you know, the more we understand this human nature, the more we're going to be able to see and make more explicit certain things that are good or certain things that are bad for human beings. So then, let's go on to talk a little bit about a natural standard of human actions. In a sense, this is the main foundational issue in ethics. Is there a natural standard? See, because if there is, this of course is a basis for holding all people, regardless of religious faith, holding all people to a certain extent accountable for this. Of course, it's also a great basis for being able to do some apologetics, or being able to share with others if we can see a natural standard for human actions, then as regards all kinds of critical ethical issues in today's society, arguments can be made in a public forum that do not need to explicitly invoke religious authority as regards these issues. Again, something that is very, very important for us as Christians living in the society that we live in. So, there is an objective, discoverable, standard, measure, order for human actions. Order, measure, standard. It's objective, meaning it is the same because it is connected to human nature. So it's the same for all human beings. And it's discoverable by us. It might take some looking into, but it is discoverable. Just as there's a simpler standard for apple trees. 
or for birds as regards what's good for them, what's not good for them. And it applies to all of that nature. It goes along with the kind. It's not individual sensitive. The foundational principles are universal. They're objective. They apply to all. How do we discover the standard? This, of course, is a profound question. It has an easier answer and it has a more complex answer. I think we'll be able to get a couple of things straight about it. Here's the good news. And you'll, and you'll recognize here this is what is often referred to under the name of natural law. All people have at least some insight into this natural standard. All do. And this is evidence in the interactions cross-culturally in a number of ways. Well, let's just point to one. How people interact with one another. We take for granted that we can hold others to the same standard that we have seen. For instance, that we expect honesty. That we expect that people will understand. We need to be truthful with one another. This is something that, that everybody naturally sees. I should expect it of others. And I'm not going to be surprised when others expect it of me. Now, we all know, and we're going to come back to this a couple times again. We all know there can be people who will deny that. To say that it's naturally discoverable does not mean that everybody will immediately agree to it. We can talk a little bit later about why might some not see it. So to say that it is discoverable does not mean that absolutely everyone is going to immediately say, oh, you're appealing to natural law, now I know what you're talking about. But thinking reasonably, it is evident in experience that people do expect others to be able to be held to the same standard that they are holding themselves to. Another aspect of insight into how there's this natural standard comes from a, a real quick analysis of human law. Consider this. It is always expected when we have discussion transculturally about human laws that you can raise the question about that human law. Does this human law make sense? Is it a good one? Now, think. What is the basis for even asking that question? There is an implicit recognition that there must be a standard that ultimately is prior to the human law itself. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense when it comes to foundational human-made laws to say, well, okay, now I understand that that law has been made by this human authority, but I'm going to make an argument now that it's not right. And in general, again, there always can be some who will raise an objection, but in general, this has always been recognized as a very reasonable approach. 
This, of course, was recognized when, for instance, after World War II and the famous trials of the Nazis. It's recognized that they can be held accountable for certain standards that were more foundational than anything that was passed by any human authority. So I've just given, given two instances of how we can discover that there is some natural standard, that we can just see it in our own interactions with others and what we see ourselves as being able to be held accountable for as well as others. And then the questions that we naturally would ask and have historically always asked about human laws. Does it make sense to say that there's some standard by which they can be judged? That said, then we can go on and ask, well, what is the standard? Now, of course, we're not going to be able to paint a complete picture of it, but let's just put it this way, that there are certain actions that by the kind, there's certain kinds of actions that are always wrong. There are certain kinds of actions that are always wrong. And then also, there are certain kinds of actions that are good and are required. Something brief on each. Note, by the way, we would never say there's certain act kinds of actions that are always good. Any good kind of action can still be a bad action if it's done badly. So you can never say there's a kind of action that's always good. Almsgiving it is a good kind of action, but you can't say it's always good because someone could do it badly or do it for the wrong reason. But on the flip side, there are certain kinds of actions that are always bad regardless of how they're done. So it's a little bit easier to see that. So let's just start there briefly. I'll give one simple example. Obviously, there's many, but I don't think that we have to linger. Adultery is a kind of action that is always wrong. Worth noting, Aristotle, pagan philosopher, 4th century BC, when he made a list of kinds of actions that are always wrong, never can be done well, adultery was right in the middle of the list. It does not take religious faith in order to see that. It does take insight, but it is something that is naturally knowable. Let's just talk quickly. What kind of insight does it require? Well, here we can actually go back to something that we talked about last time. It does require insight into something about soul-body unity. The man is the rational animal, that we are soul and body for watch. And this might ring true to certain things that you've heard in recent times, if the body is not an essential part of who we are, then it wouldn't really matter what you, a spirit, do with your body. Sexual morality, such as that adultery is wrong, would then go out the window. For how could something that this fundamentally spiritual being does with its body, how could that fundamentally make any difference? But no, if we have insight into the beautiful, magnificent soul-body composite unity, then, for instance, we have a basis for seeing something as grand as this. Some bodily actions have an intrinsic meaning. 
an intrinsic spiritual meaning, such as, prime example, the sexual act as a bodily act has a meaning of I give myself totally and exclusively to you, period. That can be, I present for your consideration, naturally seen. And that's a basis then for seeing, okay, then adultery and other types of activity can be seen to be naturally wrong. Let's turn to an example of inaction that is good and thus required. I choose this as a philosophical example. Aristotle appreciated this example. Honoring your parents. Honoring your parents is a good action. And it is a required action. Human beings naturally understand. If we do not honor our parents, we are failing as human beings. We cannot hold our heads high as human beings if we are not honoring our parents. This is the kind of activity that we see. This is good. Not only is it good, but it must be done. Another example, I'm going to be bold with you. Offering some kind of sacrifice to God. Aristotle would defend it. St. Thomas Aquinas did defend it from natural law. I'm not going to bother defending it at the moment, but I just want to point out when we really understand human nature and we look at it with confidence and we really have looked at it in its beautiful context, we can see an amazing number of beautiful things that can be understood by natural reason. St. Thomas has a beautiful argument that we should be able to see from our understanding of human nature that we would be failing in being human beings if we did not actually render sacrifice unto God. Now, let me, let me throw something out at you. Many people, and it's important that we understand this in this day and age, many people will have arguments against the very things that I've just said. Many people will not see it. One of the greatest scandals that people find as regards the whole thing we've said about natural law is the following objection. So let's just bring it right up. If there's a such thing as natural law, if we can really see a natural standard of right and wrong, naturally, and everyone can see that, then why is there so much disagreement about morality? That's something we have to reckon with. If we really think that there's a such thing as natural law, why is it? I mean, if today's world doesn't make this objection very pointed, I don't know what does. How can that man, this man at the front of this room, stand here and with confidence be saying, oh yeah, people can naturally understand that adultery is wrong. I mean, what planet is this man from? That's a very important objection, isn't it? 
I throw this out at you. This is not my whole response, but this is something we have to bear in mind. Our thoughts tend to follow our desires. We tend to think along the lines of what we want. And I throw that out, not so as to make us be judgmental of others, but so that we actually begin by looking at that in our own life. Do you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying here is arguments look all the better to us when we want to agree to the conclusion to them. And I'm not saying that by way of saying that's the only reason that people don't hold for this objective standard. There is genuine confusion and it is important that that confusion be met with honest reasoning about these things. So I don't mean to short circuit that at all, but I think it's important for us to understand clearly, as I've brought up the example of adultery as one to look at, I think it's important we can, we can say this without being judgmental of others. We can look at our own lives. We tend not to grant the arguments that we don't want to. So it's important to bear in mind, when people are not agreeing with certain moral principles, it's almost always the most difficult to follow. And that needs to be borne in mind as we consider that whole situation. A key conclusion that I want to draw as regards this standard is we might say that the great divide in ethics in the approach to morality in our world is between two positions. One says we humans are the makers of morality. We are autonomous, we are free, and we fundamentally have the dignity and nobility of being able to decide what is right from what is wrong. And then the other position says there is an objective standard that we discover. Keyword, discover. We didn't make it. It's there to be discovered. That, ladies and gentlemen, is really the great divide that there is out there. There's a great um, writer who wrote uh, um, a book called After Virtue. His name is Alistair McIntyre. One of the most famous chapters in this very famous book is called Nietzsche or Aristotle. And I'm going to tell you why he said that, because it points to the very thing that we've just said right here. Do you know what Nietzsche's fundamental view on morality was? It's, it's incredibly powerful. Early 20th century, it, it, it had so much appeal to people. Listen, it basically says this. Who out there is willing to have the courage to come forward and to rise to human dignity and make your own morality? Who is willing to stop being a slave, a follower of others, and step up and do what clearly you're called to do, and that is decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You deserve that much. People found this 
overwhelming. Compare that, if you will, to Aristotle. Your dignity, your greatness is in the humility to see that you have been given a standard. Whence it comes, we might not be sure, but it is obvious that there is a standard of right and wrong that we did not make. We discover it, and our nobility is to live it out well. I don't know about you, but that one gives me the chills. But it's very important to recognize they're both out there, and that is the fundamental divide. And I'd just like to throw this comment at you. Do you know what makes me most sad about those who take the position of our human dignity is to be the makers of morality? They have not either been able or been willing to see that everything they have is a gift. Their very life, their nature, their very being, man has made nothing. The incredible ingratitude of seeing oneself as the arbiter and master of morality when everything we have is a gift, right down to and including the amazing call to live out human nature. Who could have conceived of such a gift, of being called to live the strikingly beautiful order that we're talking about. What I wanted you to take away, really the central point of today. There is an order, there is a measure, there's a standard that is given to us. And even again, philosophically, even if we don't proceed to make an argument, this is exactly where it came from. Though philosophically, we can ultimately see it was from God, who is the designer of nature. What we have has been given to us and fundamental to what's been given to us with our human nature is in order a measure of what its flourishing and happiness looks like. And I wonder whether even we in this room have begun to fathom how grateful we should be for that. I know I haven't. Let's turn to virtue. Let's go, go through a couple of the basics about virtue. Definition of virtue. An habitual or a habitual disposition to act or think rightly. A habitual disposition to act or think rightly. Again, just to jump ahead right now. Whoa, we were just talking about this natural sin. Where did this virtue come from? Bottom line, I alluded to at the beginning. Where are we going with this? Virtue is going to be the way 
that that standard, that measure, shows up in our life. And the thing I hope to start to do for you today and to continue next time is to paint a picture of that amazing thing called a virtuous human being, where you see the call that is written into nature being lived out in its surpassing beauty. That's what virtue is. It's virtue is when that measure has been applied and it's literally become incarnated in our thoughts, in our desires, and in our actions. That's the beautiful call. Virtue is specifically what it looks like. So, an habitual disposition to act or think rightly. The neat thing is, it's in the various powers of the soul. Last time we spoke briefly about the different powers of the soul. Given that the powers of the soul are the different bases for the different things that we humans do, our intellect, our will, our sense appetite, the really neat thing that Aristotle, again, was the one who was really the master of this, the different virtues are really, ladies and gentlemen, nothing more than this. They are excellences. The original word in Greek for virtue simply meant excellence. They are excellences of those powers acting just as they were designed to do. The order, the natural design has become enfleshed in them. It's spiritual and it's bodily. Virtue is where that order is working perfectly in all the different powers. But first we need to talk a little bit about what we mean about this technical terminology. I know at times I make the mistake, I use the technical term, terminology all the time. It's not that clear what exactly might be meant here. So we've said an habitual disposition. What's going on there? I want to explain that by making two quick points about a habit or habitual disposition. We humans act from habitual dispositions all the time. Be they good be they bad. We also are always forming them. Let me just quickly talk about that. Consider, if you will, the following scenario. You are walking through the supermarket and you come upon a cart that has somebody's wallet left in it. Now, very simple question. What are you going to do? All I want to say about that right now is this. I will give you 50 to 1 odds. You are going to do right now, well, let me put it rather this way, 50 to 1 odds. Your best friend or your spouse could right now answer that for you. Anyone who knows you knows exactly what you're going to do right now. In a sense, end of point. What's my point? You will act according to an habitual disposition within you. In almost everything that comes along, you do. You are, in fact, profoundly predictable. Right? I mean, even sometimes we think, well, I'll do something a little different. I mean, it's, you know, those who know us are like, you know, that was predictable too. We act from habitual dispositions. Now, here's the neat thing. 
That's not denying freedom. You are still free. But, but, but watch. I mean, so, the very virtuous person. Just picture it, if you will, for a moment. There's the wallet. Watch. There's not this dramatic moment of freedom. <gasps> what should I do? Well, I mean, that doesn't happen. Particularly, you know, the virtuous person, oh, oh my goodness, where, where, ah, who left this wallet here? Now, there's not, not that, oh, all the things I could do with this money, none of that. Just, oh my gosh, where, where, where's the person who left this? Now, at the same time, another kind of person, seeing that wallet, there's not any great drama, but it's kind of like, <gasps> is anyone looking? <laughs> Boom, out of here, gone. Right? Nary a thought. I, I present it for your consideration. Very few people would actually have a dramatic moment of freedom right there. Pretty much everyone's already going to do what they always do. Expand this to almost every other thing that happens. If you're in a car accident, if you're, I mean, whatever. You're walking through the woods. And you put yourself in the scenario. Here's the thing. We do act for better or for worse, we act from habitual dispositions. All right? Does that make sense? All right. Corresponding to that, we form them. How are they formed? They are formed, of course, by how we have acted in the past. Right? And so it is, as Aristotle would simply say, repeated individual actions bring about dispositions within us. I, I love this point. It's, 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 it's very simple. It's, it's analogous to how lifting weights makes you stronger. I mean, isn't it great how nature is designed? I mean, it's just, it's just an utter thing of, of, of wonder. If you use a muscle, the muscle gets stronger. Have you ever thought of the amazing design that had to go into everything that works together so that you get stronger just by doing it? Well, there's a very similar situation on the spiritual level, on our, the dispositions of how we act. Doing it this way, slowly, not immediately, but sure enough, is bringing about a disposition in us to act that way again, for better or for worse. Now, of course, the interesting thing is also contrary actions can break a habit rather quickly. Aristotle points out, unfortunately, to a certain extent, unfortunately, good ones are broken more quickly by bad actions than bad ones are broken by good ones. It's just kind of a point of experience, right? If we've been really good as regards you know, restraining ourselves in important areas where we need to restrain ourselves, if for whatever reason we, we start to binge and kind of give up our principles, we can ruin a good habit rather quickly. It takes a little longer to change a bad one. But the basic principle remains. For whatever reason, and it's ultimately I think it's kind of obvious what the reason is, but this is the way things are. Whether we like it or not, the more we get to know it, I think we'll actually love it, that we will be forming habits by how we act. I, I find that kind of exciting and challenging just to realize, wow, I mean, kind of every, every time. I can really be helping myself form a good habit 
just by uh, really challenging situation. Child spilt milk. Just uh, that's okay. Just to overcome yourself that once has at least begun to go a long way to actually forming a disposition. You probably can relate to this from your own life. It, it literally can start to come to the point where we have worked at it, where you don't have to overcome yourself anymore because it has become habituated. Right? All right, so this is the critical foundation for understanding virtues, which Aristotle said are a kind of habit, and the Christian tradition follows on that. Virtues are habitual dispositions. We act from habitual dis dispositions. We form these habitual dispositions by how we act. Proceeding then, we can make the obvious distinction then. Good actions form good habits. Bad actions form bad habits. Good habitual dis dispositions have always been called virtues. Bad habitual dispositions have always been called vices. Not a lot to say about that. We can go on. Two key characteristics of virtuous activity. Now, this is, this is, this is where I think the beauty of the design, something that I hope that you'll have kind of an aha moment of how beautiful this is, and, and again, how clearly it makes our human flourishing be more amazing than we perhaps have begun to realize. As we develop these virtues, good activity becomes, two key things Aristotle points out, easier and more pleasant. Let's just look at that very briefly. Virtuous activity is easier and more pleasant when we have formed, when we have the virtue. So watch. Here's a distinction that Aristotle makes. It's one thing to do a, now you fill in any virtue here. I'm going to choose the virtue justice. It's one thing to do a just action. It's another thing to be a just person. In other words, somebody, even someone who's not accustomed to doing just actions, might have that moment of freedom where he says, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this just action, which is great. He's now done a good action. One action, one just action, does not a just man make. Many do. When we have become habituated by many just actions, and then we have what's called the virtue, that's when we can say, okay, this is a just person. Not just someone who might happen to choose to do something just in any given moment. Someone from whom justice flows like water from a spring. It flows with ease and it flows with pleasure. Quick example. Blessed Mother Teresa. I always think, I, I, I always think of, of pictures of her going about out among the poor. What, try to enter for just a moment into Blessed Mother Teresa's mind when she saw someone in need. Enter into her mindset. There she sees someone. Talk to me about intellect, will, appetite. What, what happens? Everything was just immediately, I want to help. Boom, here I go. She loved it. She found it easy. 
it flowed out of her again, as natural as could be. This is virtue. This is what you and I are designed for. The good actions just, just flow out of us. For we have been interiorly transformed. Whereas it were the order, the standard, has become so much a part of us that it just it flows out of us. May I put it to you this way? At times we have been trained to think it's better if it's more difficult. There is something beautiful about the soul who overcomes bad inclinations to do something good. We're not going to look down on that, but it's very important that we be clear on something. What are we designed for? We are designed to do it with ease and joy. That is having the virtue. Where again, it flows out of us. Does that make sense? Consider, if you will then, the beautiful point. The greater the virtue, the greater the joy in life. Always. Always. If you've ever, from your personal experience, seen anything to contradict that, I want to know. The greater the virtue, the greater the joy. For to be virtuous is to be what we were designed to be. Another beautiful way of putting it is, the virtuous have been so transformed in understanding and in appetite, they literally find themselves doing what they want to do all the time. Does that sound strange? Doing what they want to do. Think of the greatest people you've ever known. The good actions flowed out of them. And they were loving it. Isn't it exciting? The, 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 great, the great Father Hardin once said, I paraphrase, if you're not happy, you haven't transformed your desires yet to be virtuous. Moving along, distinction of moral and intellectual virtues. Here now we, we start to get to set up what we're more going to make good on next time. We'll be able to do just a little bit of it here today. If you want to look at Roman numeral 4 on, on, on your handout, I'm, I'm going to do it rather quickly and you'll have it there so you can remember it. But the distinction of moral and intellectual virtues, the different virtues corresponds to the different powers in our soul. Moral virtues we define as habitual dispositions of desiring, key word there, desiring, so it matches up with appetite, of desiring and acting in accord with right reason. Moral virtues, habitual dispositions of desiring and acting in accord with right reason. Three of the traditional cardinal virtues come under moral virtues, justice, courage, and temperance. Justice, courage, and temperance are what are called moral virtues. They are in appetites. Justice 
is in the will, and then courage and temperance are in what's called the sense appetite, as we talked a little bit about last time. We'll be able to talk about that more a little bit later today and then primarily next time. Intellectual virtues, habitual dispositions of thinking rightly or having insight into truth. So intellectual virtues match up to the intellect. So note how there's habitual dispositions both of knowing how to think and understand things properly and then there's these habitual dispositions of how our wants, how our desires move. When we have each of these virtues, each of these areas then is transformed. I divide practical, pardon me, the intellectual virtues into practical and speculative. Here I'm simply following Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. Practical intellectual virtue is what's called prudence thinking or insight about how to act, if we have the virtue called prudence, which we'll talk about next time, we know how to act. And then if we have a speculative intellectual virtue, these are virtues of thinking or insight into higher truths of reality. And in that also we will talk about next time. Moving right now more specifically to moral virtues, I'm going to just say something about the first, and then we're going to shut it down for today. The queen of the moral virtues is justice. We define it as the enduring will to render what is due to others in every situation. I know I've been throwing a lot of terminology at you today. If, you, if we can hang together here, this is, this is another just surpassingly beautiful that thing that I want you to try to picture. What would it be like to have a will that has been so formed that it has a firm and enduring disposition, no matter what arises, no matter what comes before us, to render what is due in whatever situation of life. Think how broad that is. Interestingly, both biblical usage and ancient Greek usage took this queen of the moral virtues and basically made it be interchangeable with just good. And you know the one great line from the Gospel of St. Matthew where that's used of, of a rather amazing man where he's simply introduced by saying, and Joseph was a just man. In a sense... Enough said. This is the virtue wherein the will always wants to render what is due. Think of the different ways that that shows up. Think of the beautiful different ways that we owe others. You know what? I love how Aristotle pointed out you always owe something to others. Justice is always most properly to other people. It's based upon our connections to others. We owe our friends. We owe our parents. We owe our community. Think of the different ways. Piety. We owe something to God. We owe something to our parents. That's one of the traditional parts that comes under justice. Think of respect for authority. Whatever authority it is, we owe it. 
at times we owe wealth. There are certain situations where other people simply deserve to have wealth that is ours. And think of that. The just man, oh my goodness, here's someone in need. He, He immediately sees his wealth as belonging to this other person. He wouldn't think of considering it otherwise. Oh my gosh, someone in need. Surely, given that I'm in a position to help, and there's not, say in this case, just to make it clear, there's not someone else who can help. Boom, I owe it. And he rejoices therein. It's, It's an habitual disposition that has become so deeply ingrained in him that he does it with love. I give a quotation on on your handout from Aristotle. It is a characteristic of man that he alone has any sense of good and evil, of just and unjust and the like. And the association of living beings who have this sense makes a family and a state. In a sense, this is where human action takes place. Truly human interaction is always grounded upon justice. Think then how we have a queen of moral virtues here. Our will has through much practice, and then, if I may go theological for a moment, the grace of God. Our will has been so transformed that that's where it is. I want to do what I need to do, what I should be doing in whatever of these situations I might happen to be in. I simply want to close then by saying next time we're going to look at the other three cardinal virtues, say a little something more about justice. But my prayer for you and for me is may we know the joy of laying down our head at night on a pillow where we can look back at a day and say, I have this day rendered to all those around me in whatever situation I was, that which was due to them, thereby making present in my life the order that is incumbent upon me, that has been given to me as a human being. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. I had requested Dr. Cutterback to speak on the moral virtues in regards to our, our Lenten observation. So. Immoral virtues? What? Immoral virtues. Immoral virtues. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know whether that must have just been me. Um, I'll keep this very brief. Um, I, pardon for just one more distinction that I didn't make during the lecture, but, I, I, but let's do it now. Aristotle uses the word continence to distinguish between... Uh, a person who's good and trying to do what is right versus the person who's come, become virtuous. And I think this might be very helpful for us as we consider Lent. Consider the following. Well, actually, I'm going to talk about it more next time because the, the area that he most talks about this is in the ever-challenging virtue of temperance. But, but listen to this. The continent man, Aristotle says, is the one who does the right actions, but doesn't do them from virtue. 
he has to be always overcoming himself to do what is right. And he makes very clear, this, this is laudable, but it's not the goal. I, 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 I find this a brilliant point. So just consider, consider that, if you will, that it's like this person, when he comes upon the wallet, he, if he's habitually continent in the area of justice, and, and frankly, this is more the way, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a reasonably continent man in this sense. I see the wallet, I know I'm not going to take it, but it's almost a little bit in me of like resignation. I know I'm not allowed to take it, so I better go try to find the person it belongs to. <laughs> right? And so it's, I, I have to, I, I, it's not that I'm excited about it, but um, I, I just, I, I know I, I'm going to do the, the right thing. Again, more next week, but in the, in, the area of, in the area of chastity. Someone who has to work really hard to not do something wrong. I know this is super challenging. He points out, that's great. And that's what we call the continent man. But that is not what he calls the chaste person. To have the virtue in question, you have so transformed your desires that it is easy. Same thing as it regards the realm of courage. He said the truly courageous man, while there's always in the area of courage a certain difficulty, it, again, it, the whole thing of it flowing out. All right, so do you, do, you get the, do you get the distinction of the consonant is the one who will do the right action but really had to overcome himself? All right, so watch. This is the, I just throw this out. Consider this for Lent. What practices might I do to change myself from being consonant to being virtuous? Real quick example. Sometimes when I talk to the undergrads, they say, well, Dr. Bright, is it really that bad if I go to a movie that's got these bad parts in it? As long as I, I'm not going to run off and do something bad, I can handle it. Right? And, and, and my response is basically this. Look, if, if, if you want to be the continent man the rest of your life and not become the chaste man, then fine, your line of reasoning right there worked. But if you want to start really transforming your desires you might want to adjust your standards for how you're going to act here so that you can be changing your heart, not just controlling your actions. It's, it's a subtle distinction, but an extremely important one. So we might think about what practices might I do to, to, in, to put in the positive light, more wants to do good things. So, here, so here, here's the one suggestion, and then, and then, and then we'll stop. Um, if you want to fall in love with something, put yourself in the presence of it. So if we, wanna, if we want to, our heart to be moved, if we want to, for instance, love our Lord more, then we put ourselves in his presence by, for instance, reading scripture, or adoration, or going to mass, etc. Do you see the, the attitude of, I'm going to think of a practice that will draw my heart, despite, in addition to all the other good reasons to have done the aforementioned thing. Think of that of, okay, I'm going to put myself in a position where my heart will be drawn, and I'll, as it were, fall in love. So if I want to be falling out of love with certain bad things, I'm not going to just use the standard of, well, can I control myself or not? I'm going to use the standard of, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to, I'm going to put my, these things aside so that they stop exercising this draw on my heart. And I'll put myself in the presence of these things, and that way I'll be cultivating the virtue as opposed to the continence. Does that make some sense?
Good. I'm going to leave it at that. Open to questions. Uh, in an earlier talk, Dr. Marshner uh, made a distinction between Islam and essentially the rest of the world, the Judeo-Christian world, for example. He pointed out that the mor morality comes from the law in, in Islam and in, in the rest of the world, or it, the, the laws come from the morality. Now, this is an important issue for our time. How can we, how can we discuss this with someone on, from the standpoint of the natural law? Uh, that is an, an outstanding question, um, and I, I'd say the, the whole issue of how to discuss something with someone is a very contingent question because it very much depends on who that someone is. I'm not trying to evade, but I, I'm going to say uh, I, I'll have to kind of choose a certain someone. Let, let's say you're saying that you're, you're concerned that some the someone in question would be tending towards a kind of legalism and are, are you saying by this natural law thing that we're just that we're um, I should fundamentally see myself as as bounds to just this abstract duty because here's my response love is at the root it's about our flourishing if you wanted, if if all uh, of the Professor Marshner point, if you want, the kind of comparative religion point, with his, his point there is fundamentally this: it's it's not that there's not law. Law is absolutely central in Christianity, but law was always from a loving God who has given you the law to bring you to the fullest relationship with Him. It's fundamentally that that is lacking in the other ones. When law is not about love then it becomes burdensome. So I, I, I would say, I, I'd put it to you this way, law should come from love and it should lead back to love. Very nice thing, for, I think, for parents to bear in mind any rules in the family. It has, to, it has to be clearly coming from it and leading back to it. So natu I, I, when we speak of natural law, I would present it as, isn't it great uh, how this standard is clearly the fruit of a loving design of our nature to guide us towards our own happiness. That's, that is what it is. And I'd say that should be clear from our experience. They're only told not to do something because those things will hurt us. We're told to do this because therein is our fulfillment. This comes from love. Law is not uh, something to be that we need to shy away from. It's the essential connection with love that you want to emphasize. That's, that, that's how I would suggest. When you discuss justice, you talked about justice is giving to someone what's their due. And in all of you, but everything you just said, you discuss justice towards other people. Is there any element of justice towards animals or anything other than people. For example, if, if uh, an animal is hurt and is dying, is there any justice involved in putting that animal out of its misery immediately rather than just leaving it there and letting it suffer? Very, very reasonable question. Um, I, I would say it, it's, it's a little bit of yes and no. Um, it, it, would, it be, would it be incumbent upon us to act towards animals in certain ways? Absolutely. And I, I, I think it's great that, um, I, 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 this is actually very close to my heart, 
I think there's a real Christian slash philosophically sound environmentalism that I'm just going to say we need to recapture. Environmentalism is not some wacky, strange idea, though there are some wacky, strange ideas out there going under the name of environmentalism. <laughs> but let me put it, to, put it to you this way. The beautiful thing in both Aristotle's worldview and in the Christian worldview is that in this great hierarchy, um, those lower things are ultimately to serve rational life. We talked about this a little bit last year. So the importance of animals is not simply in themselves. It is true to say, Christian, they were created for us, but part of that whole scenario is precisely so that we can exercise a stewardship like unto God's own stewardship. So it's a unique opportunity for us to act like God, and that means treating them in a stewardly way. So that it, it is a matter of justice, but I would put it this way. It ultimately is not founded in what is due to them. It's ultimately founded in what is due to ourselves and to God. So justice in the proper sense always is ultimately towards persons, but it can have as its object, you do need to do certain things for those lower things, but they aren't the ultimate object in question. You strictly owe me certain things as a human being. You don't strictly owe it to the raccoon in himself, but it still is a just act that you must do to do certain things towards taking care of them. If that, if that, again, that's a, that's a, that's a, that was a great question. Thank you. Um, you spoke tonight about how we become virtuous men and women by repeatedly making the right choices, um, and then we develop a habitual disposition. Indeed. But I keep thinking about the end of Romans chapter 6, where St. Paul himself says, I want to do the right things, but I can't do the right things. Right. Praise be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ who enables him to do the right thing. And I was just wondering where grace comes in to this whole development of the virtuous man and woman. <laughs> that, that was truly a gorgeous question. Um, um, and, and the good news is, in one sense, the answer is easy. It comes in at the beginning, the middle, and the end. It's all about grace. So let, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Here's, here's, here's the great thing. But grace perfects nature that we've been talking about. So you have to remember, part of the thing is, Sabatino almost has me sign something that I won't do theology because I'm Mr. Philosophy Man. All right? So, um, um, I, but okay. So he gave, he gave, me, he gave me the go-ahead. Um, now, the, all... All the things that I was talking about here, we can't do any of it without grace. But with grace, we can. So where, where does grace come in? And this is why it fits so perfectly with Lent. We pray to grow in virtue. Now, there are also supernatural virtues. There's the theological virtues. And, and, and here, I mean, talk about the beauty of our theology. St. Thomas takes the same Aristotelian terminology. It is a virtue. It is a habitual disposition. But then God just places it in you. So supernatural faith, hope, and charity are supernatural dispositions that God has just placed in us. But then 
we still have to act it out. It's one of these, it's actually a little bit backwards. God gives you the disposition, but then we have to, by his grace still, act it out and develop it and practice it. But sticking with the, with the, with the natural virtues for a moment, just that we, our, our approach is, St. Paul was talking about the difficulty because his will as yet was not fully virtuous. It was not rectified. The order has not completely taken over yet. And so he's, he, he's there, he's identifying with the rest of us. Now remember, he has a very high standard. And, and <laughs> you know, you know, so he, by, you know, he's kind of giving us words that we can apply to us that are probably a little more true of us than they are of him. But they are true enough of him that he can say it without lying. All right? So he did have certain inclinations he had to overcome. And so he calls upon our Lord to help him. In a sense, that's what, that's what Lent is all about. Help me, Lord, by your grace to root out these bad things, to root out the bad dispositions, and to deeply enroot the good ones. It is completely by his grace. But do remember this. Grace does transform us. Our theology is not one of grace is just God looks at us and sees us as different from we are. It's much more beautiful. Grace makes us able to do what we never would have been able to do. So for Aristotle, I mean, this is how Aristotle thought anyone could do this. I don't know. But it is, it is even our natural calling. But grace allows us to do it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. All right, thank, thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-635. 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.